Turn to Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. Luke 5, 17. I don't know about you, but don't you just love it when things don't work, okay? When things are broken? Like think about your car or your home or your computer. When, it, when you've got a malfunction, you know, and it's not working, right? I, I'll tell you, for me personally, I, I just, I hate those sort of things, okay? I like things running smoothly. I don't want a lot of problems. Um, I'm not really good at fixing things. Usually when I try to fix things, I make matters worse. I don't have a lot of tools. I don't necessarily even want a lot of tools, okay? I just want things to work well, but as life would be, things break, right? Have you ever noticed that? And so, for instance, um, recently came home and uh, from the office, um, I noticed that uh, the food that was supposed to be in the oven, the kids were just supposed to put it in there and turn that on, maybe in like an hour and 15 minutes before I arrived, it's still sitting there on the stovetop. I'm like, hey, 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 what's going on here? Why is this, why is it not in there? And it was like, oh, oh, by the way, one of my kids said, oh, the oven's broken. I'm like, what? And they said it like, I checked the mail or something. Like, you know, totally, so, like, this is a big deal if the oven is broken. You know what I'm saying? This is way out of my skill set. And uh, I uh, later discovered that it wasn't even worth fixing, okay? That's, that's bad news. And, you know, but that's kind of life. I remember another situation where, one of my girls came up to me and said, Daddy, the outlets in our bathroom, they, they don't work. I'm like, oh, electrical issues. Okay, again, not a strong suit for me. Not one of my physicians where I'm a real authority on. So, so like, okay, well, what could cause that? You, I think, what do you need to do? You need to, like, investigate, right? So I show up there and look, and they have, like, all these, like, hair dryers and a hair straightener and other electronic gadgets they've been plugging in the wall. I'm like, okay, you know, what if this is a breaker issue? So I actually go, I find the breaker box, and sure enough, there's just a little switch, and flip it on, and I hear the glee of excitement. Things are all working, walking, and I try to act like I'm not surprised, like, oh, of course I fixed it, you know? I mean, no, it's like, this is a big deal. I'm pretty excited. They're excited. This worked out well, but, you know, life isn't always like that. There are issues in our life that you just can't flip a switch, and it's better, right? I mean, when you're talking about a broken body or a broken heart, or broken relationships. Some of these, these aren't quick fixes. You don't just whip out a tool and and it's fixed. Some of these things seem almost irreparable. And kind of like a meteor just hitting the earth and creating great amounts of explosion, so it is in our mind we start asking these questions like, hey, where do I go and how do I function and why is this happening? We're going to meet a man today who knows all about the problems of life. In fact, if I could use just one word to describe him, his one word would be broken. He's got a broken body. He's got a broken heart. He's got a broken soul. But before we get a glimpse of him, we've got to meet some people that actually think that they're fine and everything is working just great for them. You find him in chapter 5 in the Gospel of Luke in verse 17 where it says, one day, speaking of Jesus, he was teaching... And there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. This is the first time in the Gospel of Luke, if you've read this Gospel, that you actually encounter by name these Pharisees, these scribes, and these teachers of the law. And they are there to investigate Jesus. They'd heard a lot about him, and they wanted to find out if he indeed was a false prophet. Now, there's some things that you need to know 
about the Pharisees and the scribes and how they functioned. Um, first of all, the text actually tells us they came from a long ways away. And they came as far as Jerusalem, which is 80 miles south. So the Gospel of Mark and quote, uh, actually talks about this exact same event. They say that this event is taking place in Capernaum, which is kind of Jesus' base of operations and this, next to the Sea of Galilee. And you are, he's drawing attention from some of these Pharisees and scribes, religious leaders all the way from Jerusalem. And they're going from every village and they're all congregating because they want to investigate Jesus. And now they have every right to do this. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 13 said that the religious leaders, the spiritual leaders of Israel, were to investigate to find out if there were any false prophets or dreamer of dreams, and they were to warn the people to stay away from them. And so they're actually doing their job. And so that's what they're doing. They're investigating. Now, they had did this, this is with John the Baptist. They investigated him because John the Baptist is calling for widespread repentance. Whether you're irreligious or you're a religious Jew, you're a soldier, Gentile, doesn't matter. They're calling everybody to repent, to be broken before God, to turn from your sin, because he's saying, the king is coming, and I'm here to announce him. Well, they went and investigated John, and, and John didn't seem to follow all their rules and regulations, and they didn't like what he was wearing. He's wearing sackcloth. They didn't like his diet. He ate bugs and honey and stuff like that, and they didn't like anything about him, and they certainly didn't like his message, and so they tried to write him off. They tried to make him look bad. John didn't fit into their system, and that's what they're doing with Jesus. If you get the idea, they're like, wow, this is really cool. We've got to finally see Jesus. They're here to investigate him. Now, the word Pharisee, it actually comes from the Hebrew word, which means to divide or separate. And that's literally what they did. They separated themselves from the rest of the people. And it all got started with really, actually, good motives. Like, if, for instance, if I said, you know, you are a fine-looking group of Pharisees. How many of you would be really encouraged by that, right? Okay, just a few of you. Everybody else is like, come on, man. Because we think if you call someone a Pharisee, what? Man, that's bad. But actually to be called a Pharisee in Jesus' time, it was good. Because these were the people that were trying to keep the law. Every bit of it. In fact, they were so desirous to keep the law that you know what they did? They created what they called a fence about the law. They created 600 other laws apart from God's law, the first five books of the Bible, and they actually then started following these laws. They thought by following these laws, it'll prevent them from violating these laws. And what happened is they became like an external religion. It became all about rituals and routines. And these laws became overwhelming and overbearing. So for instance, one of their laws that they made up was related to the third commandment. Anybody know the third commandment? Thou shall not take the Lord's name in vain. You guys remember that? Yeah? So... God doesn't want his name being slandered or taken in vain or use it as a, an addition to any swear words that you might want to throw around someday for a little emphasis. And they're just like, you know what? We need to make another law to make sure that we don't violate the law of not taking the Lord's name in vain. We'll make the rule that you never actually say it ever again. And actually that tradition, that's carried on for the most part even today. Like if I asked you, what is God's personal name? Okay, and I can look. I'm seeing a lot of you are starting to look down because, oh, okay. Uh, I, I think I've heard it. Do you know what God's personal name is? He actually revealed it. Remember when God appears to Moses in the burning bush before he sends him off to free his people out of Pharaoh's hand in Egypt? And Moses says, hey, they're going to ask me who sent, you, sent me. What is your name? 
God, what is your personal name? And remember, God reveals himself and he says, Yahweh, I am who I am. Yahweh, that is God's personal name. And his name is found all throughout the Old Testament, but actually in your Bibles, you will always see it capital L-O-R-D, which is a carryover from this tradition because they never wanted to say God's name, Yahweh, so they always said Adonai instead. They always said Lord. And that tradition is carried on even today. And what happened is with all their rituals and routines, and they were big into it, marking out how many steps you could take on the Sabbath and what you could and could not do, all of a sudden what was supposed to be an inward reality where you were really trusting and knowing the living God and enjoying a relationship with God, it all became about rules, rituals, and routines, and it becomes legalism. And if you are the authority and you're trying to make everybody follow God's laws, and then on top of that, all the laws that you've made, what happens is you become the authority and the judge, and you're always critical about everybody else. And furthermore, because you yourself are a sinner and can't keep all the laws, you're actually frustrated about yourself, and so you come down hard on everybody else. And that is what they had become. These Pharisees, and they had now gathered and they're investigating Jesus. Now, they're supposed to be, according to Deuteronomy uh, 18, they're supposed to be looking for the prophet who is like Moses, one who will tell them all that God intends them to know. But what they did is anybody that didn't live like they did with all their rituals and their routines, they had customized spirituality just to be regulation, they quickly dismissed and they're here investigating Jesus, and they're here on a real good day. Did you see how verse 17 ended? For the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. And in the midst of this investigation, we find our man, our man who is broken. Look at verse 18. And some men were carrying on a bed or a stretcher a man who was paralyzed, and they were trying to bring him in and to set him down in front of him. Here is this man. Now, to be paralyzed, this guy is likely a paraplegic, okay? So he has no use of his arms or his legs. He simply can't walk. In the Jewish culture in Jesus' day, it was a huge social stigma to have any disease, especially if you were paralyzed or disfigured or blind. In fact, it was, you were neglected. And to make matters infinitely worse, almost every Jewish person thought this, that if you had something that wasn't quite right, a deformity, you were paralyzed, you were blind, it, we, it was because you sinned. Either you sinned or your parents or perhaps your grandparents, but there was a serious sin that was committed, you likely did it, and you're paying for it. That's why you are the way you are, and that is why they could justify just completely neglecting people like this. And so they did. And in fact, you see this all the way back with Job. Remember Job? Remember he had these wonderful friends, and Job is in all this misery, and his wonderful friends, they had one message and long speeches, the kind of friends you just really love when things are going bad, right? And what was their message? Job, you ought to repent because obviously you sinned greatly. And was that, was that the case? Absolutely not. In fact, they should have known that, these Pharisees and these scribes and all the Jewish people. They had the book of Job, they read it, but they always missed the message. That just because you've got some physical issue doesn't mean that necessarily you've sinned. We live in a fallen world. This world and humanity does not function the way it intend, God intended because of sin, because we've gone off on our own rebellion and done things our own way. 
and things don't work the way they should. Our lives and our bodies do break down. Our world doesn't function despite its beauty and design and all the ways we do see its power and the, and the immensity of God's design in it. It still doesn't function the way God fully intended and it's all because of sin. Even Jesus' disciples had this mindset. Remember in John chapter 9, they're out strolling around, they're leaving the temple, and they see a man who had been born blind from birth and just kind of like, hey, Jesus, they just asked him this question. Hey, we see this guy, this guy blind. He's been blind his whole life like that. So who sinned, him or his parents? That's just how everybody thought. Let me tell you who really thought this. The paralyzed man. This guy, man, he lived in, a, in an ongoing prison of guilt. He felt isolated from man and from God, and yet he needed both of them. And every day, it was just an awakening to the fact that he felt like, I am a sinner, and somehow I've brought this on upon myself. And he was mistreated and neglected, and he lived a terrible life. But he may have lived, been living a terrible life, and he may have had some, some bad theology, but he had a few friends that actually really loved him. Did you see that in verse 19? 19? And 18, they, they have this, this, there's men. Mark tells us there are four men. They're carrying on a bed, this, this paralyzed man, and they're trying to bring him in to set him down in front of him. Jesus is speaking, and he's talking, and he's being investigated by all these Pharisees and scribes and everybody else who's traveled throughout Galilee, probably even from the southern kingdom, to come to see Jesus. Many of them probably want to be healed. Some of them are investigating. They want it, but, but this house is packed out, and they're trying to bring this paralyzed man in, and they're, they're going to the door, and the doorway, of course, is packed out, and they see, like, get out of here. Come on. You're a paralyzed guy. You're not getting in here. There's no room. I have to stand. You're not getting in here. And they can't go through the window. And it's good that these aren't like fair-weathered friends or little or just fickle, faithful kind of guys. Like, Whoop, I guess, you know, just not God's will for you to see Jesus dump you off here. They don't do that, do they? No, I want you to see this. Verse 19, but not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd. They went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. So, man, can't you see it? They can't get in, so they, what they do, in fact, you got a picture of this. These are from excavations from Israel where you can actually see some of these. These are homes of wealthy individuals, but they have stairs that go up to the top, and they would have tile, and, on these, and then when you'd pick up this tile, then you'd have all this, like, thatch and sticks and mud, create kind of like a lattice effect. Well, these guys go up onto the top of that roof, and they've got their paralyzed friend, and they start ripping open tiles where they approximate where they think that Jesus is. And all of a sudden, you, if you were sitting inside there, there'd be dust, and all of a sudden there's quiet because the roof is literally moving, and next thing you know, some sunlight starts coming in. And then you see a face, and they're looking to see where Jesus is, and they start ripping up more tiles. The hole becomes bigger in this roof, and then suddenly they yell out, there's a man coming down. And then all of a sudden, this guy on the stretcher is being slowly dropped in front of Jesus. Some of these Pharisees and scribes that are sitting, they got front row seats because they're judging Jesus, man. They're backing off here because all of a sudden, dirt's falling and sticks, and here comes this paralyzed man. This picture of sin coming right down on the front of Jesus. This is nothing like this has ever happened. And I, you know, I want you to just notice the beginning of verse 20. Jesus saw their faith. Do you see that? Seeing their faith. He saw not just the faith of the paralytic. He saw the faith 
of the individuals. The individuals, these friends of his that were doing everything it took. He saw the determination on their face. He saw their hands ripping up tile. He saw them lowering him down and straining and using their muscle to make sure that guy didn't just fall down there. He's being set down there at the feet of Jesus. And by the way, if you want to picture what Christian ministry is, this is it. We're bringing people to the feet of Jesus. If you think that Christianity is about playing bingo and just family values, you're wrong. It's about bringing people to know the reality of who Jesus is and to experience his life and theirs. And that's why they're doing what they're doing. By the way, how does Jesus see your faith? Well, he sees it when you pray. Like, really pray. Don't just, I'm closing my eyes, but I'm just sitting here. But when you engage your heart and your mind, when you speak to God, when you pray for people, when you pray with people. The Lord sees our faith when we, uh, when we give time, resources, when we actually care about people. We'll do something. We put aside our interests to actually focus on the interest of others. When we will try to meet an emotional need or a physical need or a spiritual need of someone, when we come alongside and we do so in Jesus' name because his life is being lived out in ours, that is an opportunity for people to see faith. When you actually share Christ in a very real way, the Lord sees that kind of faith. When you live life with an open hand, then your faith is being seen. And I want you to see it. Jesus, it's, it remarks of him seeing their faith. I love it. You know, as Americans, man, we are pretty egocentric, aren't we? It's all about us, right? My happiness, what I want, and I want it now. But I want you to know that when people come to Jesus, it's oftentimes a group effort. And God is very concerned about the seeing their faith. These are significant words. In it together, all of us. And when people come to Jesus, let me tell you, when they come to really trust him for who he is, it's generally a process. Now, you need to know that what we really need is found in who he really is. And so you see this here in verse 20? Seeing their faith, then Jesus says this surprising statement. He said, friend. Do you see that? Wow, Jesus obviously had an affection for this man. He says, friend, your sins are forgiven you. Jesus is going to use this event to highlight what his ministry is all about. A lot of folks thought that, well, here's the healer and he can heal me. And that's all I need. I just need to be made well again. There are some people that thought that the Messiah, this Jesus, boy, it'd be really nice if he's a military conqueror and get Rome off our backs. We don't like them in our country. Jesus is going to use this event to identify who he really is and why he's come. And he says, friend, your sins are forgiven you. Every time Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, he always did it tasting the cross that was to come. Don't get the idea that Jesus just kind of flippantly said, oh, your sins are forgiven. Every time he forgave a person's sins, it was always with the view, my blood and my body is going to be broken for you. I'm going to shed my blood for you. In fact, my, your sins are going to be bore on my perfect body. I've committed no sin, but I'm going to take it all and I will pay for it. I will satisfy God's just wrath against sin. When he said your sins are forgiven, that is not a light statement. That's heavy. And this guy here, when he's hearing this, he's thinking, you know what? That's exactly what I need. 
That's what I need. I need forgiveness of sins because if I've forgiven of my sins, I can be released from my paralyzed state. You and I were kind of thinking like, man, the guy just, he just needs to be healed physically. But God knows there's something even far more than physical healing. And that is the healing of a soul. When you know the forgiveness, the release of being held against God's justice and trying to satisfy a law that you can never satisfy, that God has released you from your guilt and he's given you the righteousness that's found in Christ. That's what this man needs. And by the way, that is the purpose of our needs. The purpose of our needs is to bring us to Jesus. Did you know that? Like your physical needs, your pain, your sufferings, your cancer, your diabetes, do you know what they're doing? They're creating a need for Jesus. Your family needs, your broken relationships, your distant marriage, your I don't even know how to parent, or you got your wayward child, all these relational breakdown that you've got going, you know what that's meant to do? It's meant to drive you to trust in Jesus. Your emotional needs, your loneliness, your hurt feelings, your discouragement, your depression, your anxiety, do you know what that's meant to do? It's meant to cast you at Jesus' feet where you're actually going to get real help. Your spiritual needs, freedom from guilt and all of the bad and wicked things that you've done and your greed and your pride and your selfishness, your coolness toward God. You know what? All of that is meant to bring us to the feet of Jesus and to show our desperate need for him. Now, you know, many people think that they don't really need Jesus. They can do a lot without him, right? Isn't that most Americans, are they really concerned about Christ and they really need him? No. And that is the problem. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. John 15, verse 5. Well, this man, he is elated. Jesus is saying that he's forgiving his sins. That's exactly what he needs. But look at this. Verse 21. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Who in the world does this guy, Jesus, think he is? This nondescript man from Nazareth? stirred up all this commotion, and now he's saying that he forgives sins? What he's doing is blasphemy. Blasphemy is when you are either claiming to be God or you're claiming to do the work that only God can do. Blasphemy is also when you take God's name in vain. That's all blasphemy. And if you're wondering, like, well, you know, what does God think about that? Is that a big deal if you blasphemy? Well, actually, you know, if you read Leviticus 24, God says, blasphemy, that's punishable by death. They didn't, the Jewish people didn't kick out the word blasphemy unless they pretty much wanted to see whoever they didn't like dead. To say blasphemy was pretty much a contract to kill the man. Because when, they, when someone would say blasphemy, they might start tearing their clothes and they'd just start picking rocks up and they'd just pummel a guy to death. And you wouldn't even get an opportunity to defend yourself. And so when they're, they're reasoning with the, among themselves, this is blasphemy. Because only God could forgive sins. Who does this Jesus think he is? Now, this is something that you need to remember. The only person that can actually forgive sins is the one who can, has been actually sinned against, right? No mere man can forgive people's sins. I don't care what he's wearing. Only God can forgive sins. And when Jesus says your sins are forgiven, he's putting himself directly forward and saying, I am that Messiah the Old Testament speaks of. I alone 
can forgive sins. And these scribes, these guys that studied God's word, they would have known this immediately because Isaiah, Joel, Micah, and Zechariah all speak that when Messiah comes, God's promised anointed one who would pay the penalty for sin, his Redeemer comes, he will forgive sins. And when Jesus says he's forgiving sins, he is pointing out that he is the Messiah. And it's also really interesting that Jesus knows everything about their thoughts. Does that ever bother you? That actually everything you think, God actually knows. I find that alarming sometimes for myself. He knows it all because he's God. Theologians say this is omniscience. He knows all things, creature. And so they're reasoning among themselves. They're saying, who is this man that says he can forgive sins? Only God can do it. Does this man think he's God? Look at verse 22. But Jesus, aware of their reasonings, he answered them and said, why are you reasoning in your hearts? Now, I'd imagine they're like, oh, man, what, how in the, what is, what, he knows what we're thinking and saying, what, what's going on here? And so Jesus is going to pose a little riddle to him. He says, you know, which is easier to say? Your sins have been forgiven you or to say, get up and walk. Which, which would be easier to say? Well, let's think about that. Would it be easier to say, you, you, your, your sins, they're forgiven? Okay? Someone could say that, but how do you prove that? I mean, I mean how does God take care of that? How do we really know that that individual's sins are forgiven? Or would it be easier to say to a person that's paralyzed, that's laying here, and we say, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk? Which would be easier to say? Well, it would be far easier to kind of prove that you have the authority to actually forgive sins if you could make that man walk. But I, I guess it'd be easier to say that it'd be easier to say that to forgive sins. Because to make a paralyzed man walk, whoa. Let me tell you the reality of it. It is far greater to forgive sins. And Jesus is aware of that. And I'm sure they're all scratching their heads and they're looking at you. No one wants to talk at this point. And look at this. Look at this next verse. Verse 24. But so that you may know that the Son of Man, that is a messianic title. In fact, it was one of Jesus' favorite ways to refer to himself. He used it about 80 times. When he speaks of Son of Man, it immediately calls to mind that vision of Daniel chapter 7. Remember in verse 13 where you see the coming of the Son of Man in his glory and his power and his might. This is the promised Messiah. And as soon as he refers to himself as the Son of Man, they're all like, that is the messianic title. And you can't you see it? It is all on the line. So he says, verse 24, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority. I am the authority on earth to forgive sins. I want you to know who I am and I want you to know what I can do. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up and pick up your stretcher and go home. Can't you imagine? They're just all sitting there. Jesus is saying this. And then all of a sudden, look at verse 25, immediately. Nerves, all of a sudden, connecting. He could bend his knee. All of a sudden, he's gasping for breath because he's going into shock. Immediately, verse 25, he got up before them and he picked up what he had been lying on and he went home glorifying God. 
This guy who had been paralyzed, who couldn't move, he now is on his feet. I mean, can't you just see this? I mean, he's just, he's like, oh, I'm, I can stand. I am, I am forgiven. I, he's looking at Jesus because Jesus is the one who just told him to stand up and, and he's done it. And people are gasping. They're trying to figure out what in the world they're seeing. It's like their eyes are deceiving themselves because nothing like this has ever happened. They were like, who is this man? And the very crowd that once would not let him in because he was paralyzed, right? He served all of it. That's what they're thinking. Now when he's walking out because Jesus said, I want you to pick up your pallet and go home, they're making their way. This guy is probably crying out from the top of his voice. He is actually jumping. He's holding that old stretcher. Man, that's all he'd been laying on for years. And he's taking it. And he is going home a new man. Now, we're like, wow, that's awesome that he's, he's physically healed. But let me assure you, the man's body would eventually fail him. But his soul would live forever because he's been forgiven of his sins. He's been released and he's got eternal relationship with God. And notice all the people They're all taking this in. Verse 26, they were all struck with astonishment and began glorifying God. To glorify God means to to bless his name, to thank him, to praise him, to speak of his wonder. Everybody's just standing back. They say they were filled with fear saying, we have seen remarkable things today. We have seen things that are completely out of the ordinary, extraordinary. We've seen it. We are amazed. And friends, that is what the gospel is. God wants you to know that he sent his son to this earth to actually forgive sins. Don't think that his mission was just to make everybody well. He only made people well to authenticate that indeed he's the Messiah. Do you know why God sent his son to this earth? So that you and I, as we trust in Jesus, will know the forgiveness of sins and will have life eternal, life always with him, life from God as God designed it. That's why He sent his son to this earth. And every time you see a miracle, let me tell you why Jesus does miracles. He does it to authenticate that he's the Messiah, to authenticate his message and his messengers, and to awe us with the majesty of God. You see, when you see him for who he is, you know what happens. We worship him with all that we are. You ever see people that are just, you know, just very Christ-centered and there's, you look at their priorities and you live how, look how they live and you look at the, how they give and give of their time and they give of resources and it's not like, you know, like $2 or something like that. They, they, they give significant amounts and they, they're very kingdom-minded and they really are interested in people knowing Christ and very interested in people experiencing his love. Do you ever wonder, like, why in the world do people live like that? Why not just, you know, be like modern American and just, you know, show up at church education, sing a few songs, walk out, shake a few hands, and don't let it change your life? Do you know why some people live super Christ-centered lives? That's because they see Jesus for who he really is. And they are compelled through joy the fact that this is the living God. And that's why their lives are oriented around him. They know forgiveness and release of sins. I don't know what you've done, whether it be adultery or some sort of crime, uh, your gossip, you've torn people apart, you've said bad things, you've done bad things, you've done things that you'd be completely shocked and ashamed if it was publicly known as some of the things that you've done. You need to know that there is one who has the authority to forgive you of your sins. And when you go home, you can go home a new man, a new woman, a new boy, or a new girl 
because you're trusting in the one who's literally paid the penalty for your sins. You know, Thanksgiving, it's got to be a little bit more than food, right? And football. It's about being thankful to the God who has blessed our lives so that when we go home, we are thankful for joy, for the goodness of Jesus and his reality in our life. You see, what we really need is found in who he really is. What you and I really need, you know where you're, you're going to find it. I know that you're trying to find other avenues like, oh, if I just do this or I have more money or and this works out, I get this job or this girl will like me or whatever. You got this all little, little grid of thinking, if this happens, then I will be right and happy and well. What you really need is found in who he really is. But you know, until you see your need for Christ, you're just going to move on. And you're going to just kind of plow through life. But when you start seeing your real need for Christ, then you will truly trust him for who he is. The one who has the authority to forgive sins. The one who truly is God. Some of you are familiar with this February 18th, 2011. It was in Associated Press. It was, it, was, it was covered by a lot of sources because of just how staggering this was. But there was a Chinese man named Li Fuyan, and he had tried every imaginable treatment for these throbbing headaches that he had had. Um, they could not find out what was wrong with this guy. He actually reported on Chinese TV that he had actually started taking injections because of all the pain that was in his neck, and he was having trouble breathing and the pain in his ears. And they finally x-rayed this guy's head, and that is a picture of Li Fion's head. They found that lodged in his head was a four-inch rusted blade from a broken-off knife. And what happened, this is where he started getting these stabbing, painful headaches, is that he had been actually, his home had been burglarized, and he had personally had been accosted by the burglar, and he, this burglar had a knife and lanced it through his, the right side of his jaw. What Lefion didn't know is that that blade had broken off, and it, it wasn't seen. I would have thought, you know, you take a shower every once in a while, every year or so, you might notice something there back there, but it never severed any anything that would cause his death. It caused trouble breathing. He always felt that he had all this pain. He was doing everything he could to try to relieve himself of the pain, but it wasn't until they, the doctors finally x-rayed this, like, man, it's all in your head. You know, there's something, we're going to do an x-ray to show you. You don't have a problem. And they took this, and this totally took them back. They, they'd never seen anything like this. Anytime you have a metal knife lodged in your head, that usually results in death, okay? And this was the one exception. And so you can see where they actually surgically removed that metal rusted blade out of his head, and they called it a miracle that he was alive and that the surgery was a success because they removed that foreign object out of his head. You know, your physical bodies, they were never meant to have foreign objects in them, okay? If you need a take-home action point, okay, from today's message, that's one of them. Don't take metal blades to the head, okay? Especially if they're rusting. Bad, okay? But let me tell you something else. Your souls were never made to have foreign objects lodged in them. And let me tell you what those foreign objects are. They're sin. You know all that guilt and shame over all the things that you're done you think about them, they weigh you down. It's why you feel miserable. That habit that you couldn't kick, that temptation that you couldn't stay away from, that, that 
that relationship that you absolutely tore apart. It was you. You did it. Your neglect. You said it. You did it. All the many years you just walked away from God, even though he was so faithful to you, he provided all these things for you, and you just disregarded him and just ignored him, could care less. All of that is sin. Sin means literally to miss the mark. You know what? If that's lodged in your soul, it creates some pretty serious issues, and they're worse than this. And that is why God sent his son to the earth. And that's what Jesus is saying here. I want you to know that I have the authority to forgive sins. And so that you will know, I got the investigative committee sitting right in front of me. I know. That's what Jesus is saying. I know why you're here. Let me answer your question in a way that you will never forget. I say to this paralyzed man, I want you to arise, stand up. I want you to pick up your pallet, and I want you to walk home. And he does so glorifying God. And so does everyone who knows the goodness and the grace of God. When you know forgiveness of sins... When you know Christ personally in a very real way, you can't help but to thank God and to glorify him. And friends, that's what you're intended to do, to have a life, not only in this life, but eternally, worshiping and thanking and praising God because he is the God who is able to forgive sins and to give life. So my question to you is this, how will you go home? How will you go home? And I can tell you what the answer will be. The answer will be, what will you do with Jesus? If you see Jesus for who he really is, and you're trusting him as the Lord and the Savior of your life, you go home always rejoicing. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for an amazing passage. You've made it absolutely clear in your word who Jesus is. And so I just would right now, with anybody who is here who has never trusted Christ, they might know a lot about him, been in church a while, but they've never trusted him. Would they just pray with me and say, Lord, I I turn from my sin. You know me and my self-centeredness. I trust Jesus as Savior and Lord of my life. I want to experience your life and your forgiveness. And so I just believe I act and live by faith, and I put my trust and security not in my performance, not in my religious attendance, but on Jesus, the Son of God. And I thank you for the forgiveness we have in him, the life that we have in Christ that is meant to fill us with joy and rejoicing, that we'd go home glorifying God in the days to come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.